Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 254, recorded June 23rd, 2010. What we'll do for speed. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. And by Squarespace.com. The fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. Reduce costs, improve efficiencies, and help your company's bottom line with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy, everything you need to know to keep yourself safe on the interwebs. And here he is, the king of security, our very own Steve Gibson, the man about town, the man about GRC. You know, normally people think that I'm (laughs) over-caffeinated, but in this case, Leo... I'm only on my second cup of coffee. I'm not sure. How are you today? Great. We have a great episode. I'm always excited when I'm able to bring something that I think is really going to be interesting to our listeners. One of the things that I constantly hear in our feedback is that that people come away with something new that they didn't know every single podcast. We like Pretty that. much no matter what. And so it makes it worth their while and it makes it worth our while. It certainly does. Today, I think we're going to I've been projecting the completion of the series on (laughs) the fundamentals of CPU technology (laughs) for quite a while. (laughs) I think I'm finally running out. But before we switch to a number of things that we've got in backlog, and then once those are cleared out, uh, plow into the fundamentals of networking, which is going to be our next big series. Oh, yum. Um, I wanted to talk about, and that's what we're going to do today, what has happened over the course of the last 25 years in the, the internal design of microprocessors being pushed to unbelievable technology for the sake of speed. Um, there's stuff in our micros which which I think by the end of this podcast, everyone is going to be thinking, I had no idea that's what they had done, that that's what was in there. It's just, it is truly remarkable what, what technology has been brought to bear that we've, we've never touched on. You know, when you and I first started talking about this as we fired up our connection, you were saying, well, it'd be like caching? I was like, oh, no, my friend. <laughs> This is this is just un 
unbelievable stuff. Oh, so I can't wait. It, we it, gotta, it is a miracle, really. And it's such a, a commonplace miracle, as is often the case, that we take it for granted. And yet, well, exactly. It's, well, it's hidden. Right. And in fact, much of this is proprietary. And it's only from people scrutinizing patent documents and actually performing tests on the micros to see how they perform that the what that what's been put into them has been reverse engineered or or has been has been gleaned from looking at patents that we go oh that's what this thing is doing <laughs> and it's just well remarkable so yeah we've got a really great episode today oh, i can't wait before we also have some security updates security news as usual but we'll get yep. into all of that in just a minute before we do i do want to mention our sponsor carbonite.com because you know, security is one thing, protecting your system is one thing, but the truth is part of your security strategy should include a good backup because sometimes the bad stuff happens. Steve knows that. After all, he's the guy who created uh, Spinrite, the program that saves hard drives. Truth is, Steve, you probably wouldn't have as much business for Spinrite if people would just back up. And I know you. I know you'd prefer that. Back up for crying out loud. And the best way to back up is to back up off-site. Now, Steve does the old-fashioned way. He, he backs up to DVDs and mails them to mom, which I think is a great idea. Uh, I know a lot of you are backing up to external hard drives. Absolutely. I encourage that. I do that, too. In fact, I use multiple external hard drives. But the truth is, it's not a good backup if it's sitting right next to the original. Because what happens if there's a fire, a flood, the worst happens, and, you know, it's the thieves break in and steal everything. You're going to lose everything. Uh, and it happens. It happens all the time. It also happens, I'm sorry to say, that people sometimes back up bad copies of their data. So one backup's not enough. Here's what I suggest. This, and Peter Krogh is the guy. I give him credit for this. He's the guy who wrote the Digital Asset Management book, the damn book. He's a photographer. And, of course, professional photographers care a lot about backup. He calls it 321 Backup. And he wrote, in fact, he did a, a great uh, site with the Library of Congress in conjunction with the Library of Congress exactly on this, on photographer's workflow. It's called uh, uh, dpbestflow.org, I think. And uh, it covers all of the ideas of archiving and, and workflow and all of that. But in there at dpbestflow.org, he also describes his 321 backup. Let me tell you a little bit about 321. First, there should be, and I'll, I'm curious what you think of this, Steve, because I, I think this is, I talk about this on the radio show a lot, and I think it's a very easy way to make a good backup policy, you know, kind of understandable and doable. First of all, three copies of everything the original plus two backups. That's minimum. You can do more, it's okay. Uh, a lot of times people will back up their data, then erase the original saying, well, it's backed up. Mm. But it's no longer a backup, is it? It's the original now because it's the only copy. One copy? No. Two copies? No. Three copies. He suggests, and I know you agree with this because you do it, Steve, two different forms of media. So you do hard drive and, and, and DVD. And that's because media changes over time. Readers change. If you'd backed up everything to zip disks and that was it, <laughs> you might be in trouble today. Well, and I'm also doing network backup now. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm, and I'm that's using your S3 a lot. And that's your offsite. And that's yep. the one. So three copies, two different forms of media, and one of them not in the same place. Right. And that often can mean network backup. Now, you're very sophisticated. You use Amazon's S3. You've got tools to do that, things like Jungle Disk, which we've talked about. But for a lot of people, that's not uh, you know, going to be a good solution. It's complicated. It's expensive. I mean, it's not hugely expensive, but it's more expensive than something like Carbonite. Carbonite is a solution for people who, don't want, who want the best form of backup, automatic, off-site, encrypted backup, 
but and they just want it to work out of the box. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's going on the. My daughter just ordered a laptop for college. It's going on the laptop because I'm not. I cannot expect her to back up or to understand that she needs to back up. So this is just gonna. It's she's, she's gonna happen in the background. She won't even know it. Anytime she's online, it trickles her data up to the internet. And when I get that call, I lost the laptop or the hard drive died or daddy, I deleted my paper. I can I can say no problem. You can log on to carbonite.com. From any computer, get that data back, get that paper back. In fact, if you're using Windows, you can have, I think it's up to three months of versions. So if you're writing a paper and you've updated it and then suddenly you made some big changes, big mistakes, you can go back with Carbonite. iPhone backup too. I want you to give it a try free for the next 15 days. You don't even need a credit card. Just go to Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now. Carbonite, C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E.com. Offer code security now. I know you need, I know you now know you need to back up. And if you want a simple, easy backup that's very affordable, less than five bucks a month for unlimited backup, everything personal on your hard drive, Carbonite.com. Offer code security now. Two free months if you decide to buy. But do try it free. It's nice to do the free version first. Carbonite.com. I think Peter's really, that's, that's a nice, the three, two, one. It's nice and easy and everybody can get that. Three copies, two media f- formats, one off-site. And then you're done. You're good. All right, Steve, we have any security updates well, we have. Oops. It's been a blessedly quiet week Yay. after many weeks of great deal of torturous, tumultuous news. Uh, I did want to mention something that that I saw pick up picked up in the news, which I had independently verified and and dealt with myself, which was that this recent Mac OS ten update which we talked about last week, which was 313 meg for me and various sizes depending upon what version and so forth, that it brought back the older, oh. vulnerable version of oh, Flash. Are kidding? Now, they've done no. that before, and that's very infuriating. That's yeah, just so bad. It, yeah, so it retrograded people who may have updated oh. by putting, the, remember that we were at 10.0.45.2, and we went up to ten point one, which is now the official Adobe release. Uh, we had we'd recommended that people jump ahead and use that ten point one, even when it was not yet official, when it was in pre-release, because it was known not to have the problem, which is now being very actively exploited on the internet. There's there's lots of buzz about yeah. this this big flash problem. So now what that typically was, these exploits give uh, the bad guy root access. But then usually the software he's using is not Mac software. It's, it's Windows. So it's less, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a threat to Mac users, but they're not prone to a lot of these on, online hacks right now. Right. Well, the, 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 the new model, of course, is a different threat model. Um, it's, it's this notion of, as, as, as now is the term, weaponized email, oh, um, which yeah, is see, sort of a version bad. of spear phishing. And so, so we are beginning to see Mac exploits and mac malware to i mean it's beginning to happen it's certainly lagging way behind where windows is and people with windows are the larger target but i just sort of out of curiosity i went through under safari um i also normally use firefox on my mac but for some reason i was using safari oh i know that some reader had written that under https the lock had disappeared and it was no longer possible to check your security certificate under Safari 5. Really? Huh. And I said, oh, okay. So I fired up my Mac and fired up Safari 5. 
And it, it still is. It's a very tiny little lock in the far uh, upper right corner, which you have to click on. And then you can do everything. You can see what your security certificate is and so forth. But the, the, while I was there, I went through and looked at the add-ons that I had, the, you know, the, the, uh, the additional browser features. And I noted that, sure enough, Flash was back at 10.0.45.2. So I went to Adobe, downloaded it anyway. So just wanted to let Mac people know that they, they ought to check again to see what their version of Flash Player is. You can just go to adobe.com and right there on there's a little icon says get Adobe Flash Player. Or you can go to get.adobe.com slash Flash Player, which takes you immediately to the page where you download it and install it. And you do have to restart your browser in order for it to see the new version. And the good news is that Firefox's version of the Flash Player was updated at the same time. So just doing that for either one will will take care of it for both. Apparently, I'm, some of the people in the chat room are saying it, it, it didn't uh, set theirs back if they oh, already upgraded. So it may depend, but certainly worth checking to make sure that you did, that you have the latest version. Yeah, I'm sure I was updated but so i guess you know your mileage something may to be, yeah yeah just something to be aware of yep worth worth checking don't be disappointed if it didn't downgrade you <laughs> um the only other real news uh is this can i just wanted to update our listeners because that's why we call ourselves security now is what i i guess i would refer to now as google gate this this ongoing kerfuffle over Google's inadvertent collection of unencrypted wireless data. Um, the, most, the, the most recent news is that Richard Blumenthal, who's the attorney general for the U.S. state of Connecticut, has now stated that attorneys general from 30 states have expressed an interest in joining them, that is Connecticut, into an investigation into Google's collection of personal information over their unsecured Wi-Fi collection, uh, which is, you know, continuing to be annoying. And then what popped up in the news also this week is that the French Data Protection Agency, a, it's called CNIL, C-N-I-L, uh, their chairman, Alex Turk, has made the comment that in their early look at the data that Google turned over to them, which had been collected in France, um, the, he's quoted as saying that data that are normally covered by banking and medical privacy rules were found in the data. And IDG News also reported that CNIL had spotted passwords and email, um, uh, passwords for email services and chunks from text messages. And so, you know, my reaction is, yeah, I mean, we understand that that's what's happening in unencrypted Wi-Fi. I, you know, Eric Schmidt, Google's CEO, is, is he's saying, look, no harm, no foul. Who was hurt? Name a single person. And his point is that, yes, they recorded this on hard drives. They did it because the software that they use had defaulted in its default settings for doing so, but 
they never used the data. They never intended to. They didn't process it. That you know, and and nobody was damaged by this. I'm, I'm course, not a lawyer, but I know that intent is uh, is significant in in criminal law. You you know your intent. Well, and, and uh, su- suing for damages is. Right. You know, many of these the, these random individuals who have or wanted to fire up a class action lawsuit, it, the good news is you have to show damage. Right. And, and being annoyed is not, not damage. damage. So that's going to be the that's going to be the nub is can you prove that you were damaged? Uh, do you is it credible, uh, given what we know, that Google that this was an accident or that Google yes. didn't? It is. Yes, it's uh, it is entirely credible. They they've shown the source code they've turned that over they've had it analyzed by a third party the uh, i've looked at it myself and seen that the defaults that 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 kismet uses which is a well-known open source uh wi-fi collection tool the defaults that it uses make sense and they they are record unencrypted payloads don't bother to record encrypted payloads because, you, you know, as, as we know, encrypted Wi-Fi payload is just pseudo-random noise. I mean, unless you go to huge extents to decrypt it, which Google wasn't doing. All Google wanted was the header information. As we understand, they wanted the MAC address and the SSID. That's all they wanted. And then at the same time, they were adding metadata that, that is to say the current GPS coordinates and the signal strength, which Kismet does also add, because that's one of the things that, that Kismet records um, in its own metadata. So they were just streaming all that stuff onto hard drives as they wandered around town, wandered around the globe, actually, you know, the whole world, sucking this stuff in. And, I mean, I, I don't have a a single bit of doubt that this was inadvertent. And... I'm just wishing what what frustrates me is the wrong lesson is being learned here. I mean, people are all upset that that Google recorded something that people were broadcasting. <laughs> people have a responsibility for the fact that they're broadcasting this data. I mean, we understand this data is in the clear on, on this podcast and that it's being broadcast some I, I read some interesting conversation in the security community with people saying, is it, is it illegal for you overhearing your neighbors having a heated argument? <laughs> no. I mean, they're, they're shouting at each other out loud. You can't help but to hear it. You know, is it impolite? Well, maybe it's impolite to listen. But if it's being, if it's being broadcast as is a shouting match, then that, you're, you're going to hear it. I mean, and, and so, I, I mean, this is what, what really frustrates me is unencrypted wireless is a massive problem. I mean, it, there's no bigger security issue today, I think. And and we the world could be learning an important lesson, which is unfortunately so far not being, it's not surfacing. What, what, what's surfacing is Google is bad for doing this. And that's ridiculous. So anyway, <laughs> although we know, I mean, from case law, we know that, uh, for instance, if you are sitting out in a curb using somebody's unencrypted Wi-Fi, just because it's unencrypted doesn't get you off the hook. People have been arrested for that, prosecuted for that, and even uh, fined for that. So, which is entirely different than passively sniffing right. and and not using. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean, it's clear Google's going to 
you know, these turn back these lawsuits, but there is a public relations hit to this. And it mostly comes with people who don't aren't aren't, aren't listening to this show. You know, uh, I'll try to do my best on the radio to talk about it. But it, I think that it's inevitable that, unfortunately, uh, this state attorney general in Connecticut is doing Google a lot of damage. And it's really grandstanding, I think. Yes. Yes. Well, in fact, I I had been meaning to ask you, Leo, um, I'd, if, if you're interested, like to come on your Please do. Um, Saturday and Sunday show. Please do. Because middle of next week, Starbucks is going wireless and unencrypted. Yeah, they that's a bigger a, story. That's more important. Yes, and so I thought that would it would be good just to to talk to all of the listeners of your of your tech guy show and say, look, yes, this is free. Yes, this is going to be nice, you know, open Wi-Fi, but understand the consequences. And Why don't we, we uh, record that right after this show? Because I'm going to be at Foo Camp. And oh, uh, okay. and so we're recording the show ahead of time. In fact, this great. will be great. It'll give me another segment. You've got 12 minutes. You could do it twice <laughs> on cool. Saturday and Sunday. So we'll record it right after this show because that is an important message. And we can yeah. mention this Google thing. And, and, and No, it, it would be perfect to mention it because it sort yeah. of ties into it. Because, it, you know, here's what, you know, France is saying Google was, you know, recording right. people's email passwords. Right. Well, they were. But because you know, people were sending perfect. them in the clear. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, uh, I, I think we should probably also, I mention on the radio show all the time, but also mention this very simple thing, which is turning on WPA2 encryption is all you need to do. It's the one and only thing to do with a Wi-Fi access point. Yep. And In to fact, secure it. I did see a little blurb saying that the Wi-Fi Alliance, which is the formal standards body for Wi-Fi, was going to be removing WEP encryption Good. from the from the standard. Hallelujah. Which, as we know, is is I mean, it's better than in the clear, but it's certainly not secure. There's technology and we've done podcasts about this that talk about it in detail how it's now possible to crack the, the WEP key, W E P key in about a minute fantastic so that's so, really about time they can be dumped that piece of junk yeah it was it was you know as we know it was a it was an early standard that was designed with no consultation by cryptographers right and as the cryptographers began looking at it it just the the security unquote of it just collapsed yeah under scrutiny so you know the, the lesson was learned and and wpa the good technology was designed with you know correctly so and and i think early on there were there was a problem with not with in in some cases using wpa because there were still devices and technology that was web only but that's been years now and i mean this is years old and so i think it does make sense to retire it the problem is people are still just n using no security and mm. you know i've i've used the term before the tyranny of the default right uh, i like the phrase because it 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 says that most of the time people leave things in their default settings unfortunately since the the wireless access point and the wireless router people don't want a heavy tech support burden. They ship their access points and wireless routers defaulting to open, defaulting right. to no encryption. And so what happens is your typical user plugs it in, 
turns on their laptop, it finds it, and they go, wow, that was really easy. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, it was too easy. <laughs> a little too easy. Yeah. I think that's changing. I, I know Linksys and others are starting to uh, walk you through a secure process. Some of these companies are putting big buttons on Good. their router that says, press this to be secure and stuff like that. So I Good. think there's, of course, they understand it's going to add to their tech support costs. They're going to get more calls. People are going to be confused. But I think that they realize they've got to, they can't just leave people out in the open and the clear like The that. good news is in my own neighborhood, um, on some of my um, Wi-Fi radios, I can see maybe maybe 10 or 11 or 12 different um, Wi-Fi nodes. Every single one of them now has a padlock. And good. that was not the case a couple of years no. ago. Yeah, no, I remember going doing a net stumble, and I should try this again on my way to work and recording hundreds of Linksys's. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, not even renamed, <laughs> let alone WEP or WPA. I mean, they were called Linksys. I'm sure the default password would work. So even if they turned yeah. on WPA, I could just turn on and turn it, log in and turn it off. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, do you well, have any errata you'd like to? I don't. I just have a short, very short and sweet little note from a listener of ours, John Lavelle, who's in the UK. He said, Steve, I'm a regular listener to Security Now, so very familiar with the sort of feedback you receive for all your work, but just wanted to add some more. I just bought Spinrite. Five hours later, my dead XP system is alive again. Many thanks for the quality of both your software and your podcast, Jay. Isn't that nice? So thank you, John, for sharing. Isn't that nice? He sent that from his iPhone. Aw. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. We are going to uh, take a little break and then come back and talk about the Ooh, need for speed. The kinds of things, stuff. amazing, magical things companies like Intel did to give our processors superpowers. Your mouth is going to be hanging open. <laughs> Remember, this is a video podcast. <sighs> well, I know a little bit about this because I rem- you know, one of the advantages of being an old old timer, an old fogey in this business, is that you watch these developments. And I can remember when Intel said, now we've got branch prediction. Now we've got one pipeline, two pipelines, three pipelines. And, 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 and by the way, I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but they actually overdid it with their uh, Prescott chip, which they eventually pulled back because it had so many. <laughs> we'll talk about this. But it's so many pipelines that it was actually less efficient. Yep. So you can actually screw yourself by going too far. So it's a very interesting fine balance. I can't wait to hear all about it. And we will in a moment. Before we do, though, I do want to mention our friends at Citrix. They do the great pro- program that, uh, that you know, I'm sure by now, and if you don't, well, you ought to, called GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting makes online meetings easier. I just love GoToMeeting, and I, I recommend it to uh, all of our listeners. If you are at any point spending a lot of time traveling, to press the flesh with clients or to collaborate with colleagues, uh, you know how expensive that is, how time-consuming, how stressful. And I just and I know that you say, and I hear this all the time, but Leo, you can't make a phone call. You can't do this on a conference call. It's just not going to be effective. This is why GoToMeeting is great because it takes a conference call and makes it visual, makes it possible for you, for instance, to show your PowerPoint or keynote presentation, makes it possible for you to work on a, simultaneously in a document with a client or a colleague. Uh, you could show people spreadsheets. Anything that's on your computer, they can see. And, vi- and and I don't know if people know this, but vice versa. So here's what happens. You're on the phone call with somebody. You've got GoToMeeting installed, and I'm going to tell you how you could do that free in a minute. And you say, look, I'd like to show you. Here's what you do. 
Visit GoToMeeting.com, and here's the meeting ID. They do that. They don't have to have the software installed ahead of time. It takes 30 seconds to download this little Java stub. It's not JavaScript. Don't worry, Steve. It's Java. It's sandboxed. It's secure. 128-bit SSL, too. So even the data that you're sending back and forth is secure. Then they get a meeting invitation from you. They say, oh, yeah. And now they're seeing your computer. And you're showing them. And then, without any additional stuff... You say, now, let me see what's on your computer, and they can, give you control- they can give you a view of their computer. Just flip a switch. You can do this with up to 15 people. So it's a great way to make uh, you know, a, a meeting come alive. People actually like this so much, it's, it's almost fun. Make a conference call fun? Yes, it's possible. Try it free right now. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. Gotomeeting.com slash security now, and you can try it free for 30 days. Unlimited meetings. They, uh, there's no limit on the number or the length of meetings. It'll be $49 a month after your first month, but free for the first month. So this is the time to really, you know, try it. Mac or Windows, for companies of all sizes, absolutely free for 30 days. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We use it uh, all the time. We have several accounts because we need several accounts. Oh, and if you get a chance, if you know anybody with an iPad... You want to blow their mind. I, I did a meeting the other day. There's a free iPad app. And, and I was doing a go-to-meeting, I, I think with one of our uh, a- agencies. And uh, I went out in the backyard. I'm on Wi-Fi. I went out in the backyard, and I'm listening. The, 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 the iPad sound and, and microphone work, and I'm, I'm doing the meeting out in the backyard. I loved it. Go to meeting.com slash security now. Give it a try today. I feel the need, Mr. Gibson, for speed. Well, so we've established the sort of the original technology of computers looking at at the way, for example, early mini computers like my favorite old PDP-8 operate where memory is a bunch of words and the words are broken into fields of bits and the bits specify for example the op code the operation code what what the that that word of instruction is going to cause the hardware of the machine to do and and even then even though the machine went from one instruction to the next the execution of that instruction internally took several phases you would fetch the instruction from main memory into the, we talked about the IR, the instruction register, where the machine would then look at the opcode to determine what this instruction was telling it to do. So, so there, there was a fetch of the instruction. Then there was a decode where you decode what it is that you fetched. Then comes comes to execute the instruction whether it's incrementing the accumulator or or adding a register to another uh, maybe jumping to somewhere else um, and then in some cases you would be writing the results back maybe writing the 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 result of incrementing the accumulator back into the accumulator or writing it back into main memory if you were storing so so from a from the programmer's view, the programmer sees this as as atomic 
events, one instruction per word. The engineer who's designed the computer to do this sees that there's more going on. There's, you know, a single execution of an instruction actually requires many different phases, fetch, decode, execute, and then write back the results. So machines were being produced like that, and people naturally wanted them to go faster. And what the engineers saw was that, well, you know, we fetched an instruction, then we're decoding it and we're executing it, but while we're doing those things, we're not using main memory. That is, we're, you know, it, it's waiting for the next, the next fetch. And so the, the concept dawned on them, and this actually happened in the, uh, on, in the mainframe level in the late 60s, this notion of sort of overlapping things. And the best, the best example, sort of the, I think the, 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 the model that's clearest is, because we've all seen examples of it, is the automobile assembly line where, you know, which, as I understand it, Ford invented uh, to create his cars. The idea Just a being, side note, by the way, we're going to be going to visit the Ford assembly line on July th- Thirtieth, uh, who we me? Who-y. Oh, cool! Yeah, and I'm going to bring the uh, live uh, camera, and we're going to actually show the state of the art in modern assembly, which I can't wait. They're dear. I would love plant. to see that because I, you know, you only get little snapshot snippets of pictures with robot arms swinging stuff I know, around. I'm so excited! That would be really cool. <laughs> I'm going to go see where my Mustang was born. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, so, didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> so here, so the idea with an assembly line is that. At every stage of assembly, you do a little bit of work towards producing a finished car. The, the time required to produce one car is the time it takes to go the length of the assembly line. But once the assembly line is full of partial cars being assembled, the rate at which cars come out is is much faster than the total time it takes for a car to move through the assembly line. Wait so minute, let me think about that. The cars come out faster than it takes for a car to go through the assembly line. Yes. Yeah, so say that you had an assembly line of 10 stages. Yeah. And, and that each stage took a minute. Okay. Well, to, when, when you start making a car, if, it if 10 it's, minutes. it's going to take 10 minutes for that car to go all the way through oh, the assembly line. but then line. cars will come out one every minute. Exactly. Once oh. the assembly line is full, right. then they come out every single minute. Got it. Okay. I'm glad. Sorry. I'm stupid, but I needed to understand that. Okay. And so so in, in processor technology, we call this a pipeline. And, and virtually every machine now being made and actually made for the last two decades has been pipelined to one degree or another. So let's first apply that to the, the, the very simple model of this machine which fetches, decodes, executes, and writes back. The, the idea with a pipeline there would be that, that you fetch an instruction, then you start decoding it. Well, while you're doing that, 
memory is free. You're not using memory. So, so most instructions, most code is sequential. That is, we know that after normal instructions are executed, the program counter is incremented by one to the next word, which is then fetched, and the one after that, and so forth. That that changes in the in the case of jump instructions, which jump us to somewhere else, or branch instructions, which may or may not branch to somewhere else. But in general, it's it's a, a safe bet that we're going to be moving forward. So the engineers who wanted more performance out of the system, basically, and you and this will be a recurring theme through this podcast. You look at the various components of your system and think, how can we keep them busy all the time? How do we, you know, get the most performance out of it? Well, it's it's by keeping all the pieces busy. So if you if while we're decoding an instruction we just fetched, we assume that we're going to be executing the next one here in a while. Well, go ahead and fetch it. Get it get it read from memory. And and similarly, after the instructions been after that first instruction's been decoded, then it's time to execute it. Well, meanwhile, at that point the decoder is not busy because it just did its work on the first instruction. Well, now we've got the second instruction that we fetched while the first one was being decoded, it can now be decoded. And so so the 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 analogy is exactly similar to the the assembly line where instructions move through several stages and once they get going rather than than an instruction having to go all the way through and before you even start on the next one you you're able to make some assumptions that allow you to basically create an assembly line for computer instructions, just like you do for cars. Now, it gets from that from that simple sort of start, then things really get interesting because one of the things that happens is that instructions may interact with each other. That is to say, if we were to if we were to add Two registers, say that we had a machine with multiple registers as all contemporary machines have now. Back, you know, back that PDP-8 had just the one accumulator, and which you sort of ended up using as a scratch pad. Now we've got 8, 16, 32, lots of registers. So say that an instruction that you read was, was adding two registers together, that is adding one into another, and that the instruction that followed took the value from that add and stored it. Well, so now we have a problem because we have, we have instructions in this pipeline which interact with each other. So, so over time, engineers have made these pipelines longer because they're, they, they'd like to get as much simultaneity going as possible but they've also had to deal with the fact that there can be interactions and often are between instructions that are in the pipeline at the same time so the first thing that's done is that 
instructions are broken into into smaller pieces. They're called micro ops. So, for example, say that we had a simple instruction. We've talked about how the stack works. How, for example, when you push something on the stack, what's what happens is the stack pointer is decremented to point to a new lower location in memory, and then the value that you're pushing is written to the location that where the stack pointer is pointing to in sort of in, in, in this scratch pad. So, so that operation, a single instruction push a register can actually be broken into two micro operations. The first one is decrement the stack pointer. The second one is copy the register to where the stack pointer is pointing. And imagine another instruction like, adding a register to what's in memory. Well, to do that, you have to read out what's in memory. Then you have to add the register to what you read out and then write the, the, that sum back to that same location in memory. Well, that's three micro operations. So, so what, what the processors do now is they take these sort of what look you know, the programmer sees them as instructions, but they're actually complicated enough that they that they require they can be broken down into smaller pieces. So the 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 processor fragments these 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 single instructions into multiple micro operations, and then basically pours them in to this pipeline, which is which is getting increasingly long in some cases as long as like 20 stages of of like staging of instructions now one of the things that engineers noticed was that some instructions like this imagine this read and uh, imagine the instruction i talked about where we wanted to add a value to something in memory where we're having to read the thing out of memory then is it sort of into some internal temporary location with the, that isn't even named? Then we add a register to that and then write it back out. Well, um, so we've taken that single instruction and broken it into these three micro operations. Now imagine that there's an instruction behind it. That is, it actually is later in the code that's doing something else entirely. It's adding two registers that aren't related to these micro operations. What the engineers realized was while the computer was f- out fetching the value to be to be added to it had already fetched more instructions behind and the ones it had behind were independent of the re- of the outcome of the instructions that it was working on currently. And, for example, while fetching something from memory, the machine's adder, the ALU, the arithmetic logical unit, was idle. So the processors of today are able to realize that there's, they've got other things they can be doing and actually, which are independent of the outcome of earlier instructions. So why not execute them out of order? That is literally 
rearrange these micro operations in the pipeline so that things that are taking longer can literally be passed by instructions which which can take advantage of resources in the chip which are not currently in use. And so what we've ended up with is this amazing technology which which pours instructions in the front end of the pipeline, fractures them into smaller sort of individual granules which which need to be executed in order for that to happen. Then logic which is sophisticated enough to look at the interdependencies between these micro operations and reorder them on the fly so that so that the the assets that the chip has like arithmetic logical units like a floating point processor like instruction decoders um all these assets are being maximally used and in fact one of the things that happened was that processors went so-called superscalar what i described so far is a is a scalar processor a superscalar one is one which is actually able to execute more more than one instruction per cycle that is normally you would be retiring instructions when when you're done out of this pipeline sort of at 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 a given speed well there's if you have enough assets to execute instructions there's no reason you can't go faster than 100% and so superscalar processors go faster than 100% they've got for example there are some that have four ALUs and two floating point units and so they're literally able to be doing four additions at once sometimes those are part of this of a very complex instruction or sometimes they're part of different instructions the point is the processor has become smart enough to break all of these down into little sub functions and then sort through them analyzing the interdependencies among these sub functions and taking advantage of any anything that might require a delay in order to say oh wait a minute we've got a guy back further here who who isn't dependent upon any of our outcomes and we've got a free adder let's add, let's do that addition right now and if you if you think for a minute about the the logical complexity of any instructions which you might encounter and having to on the fly i mean we're talking there's no time to do this either this is not slowing things down the goal is to speed everything up so there's no you can't even catch your breath this this is all happening you know billions of times a second at gigahertz speeds this is all being managed so 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 now we have a a, a system which is able to do literally sucking instructions in cracking them down rearranging them on the fly looking at interdependencies well that wasn't enough for the engineers you know management said faster 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 and so they the engineers are like well, wait a minute we're going as fast as they can well what they realized was that wasn't true 
because they were there were still a way they could get a little more clever. When I, I used the word retiring and instruction before, and that's a term used in this art where you finally you finally say you like write the results of the instruction back out. So inside this pipeline, you've got an amazing amount of resources. You've got unnamed registers. By, by that I mean they're not like the register zero, register one, register two, um, or you know, AX, BX, CX. That is, they're not the registers the programmer sees. These are like temporary scratch pad registers, which are not visible to the outside world, not visible to the instruction stream, but but they're used, for example, if you were adding something to memory, well, you've got to read that in to somewhere in order to, to add something to it. So that's an unnamed register. So it's when, when you retire an instruction, you are you're sort of writing its results back out to like the real registers, to the programmer accessible registers. But the engineers realized that in some cases, they did have a result which which a later instruction was waiting for, even though they hadn't yet retired the earlier instruction out to, for example, writing to like the AX register, they did have it in the pipeline. So they added a whole nother layer of nightmare by allowing results to be forwarded, and that's the term that's used, within the pipeline to like track this so that so that partially executed instructions which had not yet been retired could have their results sent sort of back into the future in order to allow instructions that had stalled because they were dependent upon an outcome which hadn't been resolved yet. And all of that exists also. So so what we have now is something unbelievably complicated. Now, what happens if you hit a branch? Because branching any change of linear flow is the worst possible thing that can happen think about it we've we're we've got all this happening we've got you know 20 instructions maybe that have been taken apart all under the assumption remember we made one fundamental assumption at the beginning which was we're going to go linear all of this sucking in things ahead of where we are assumes we're going to use them. All of this work says that we know where we're going, except when we come to a conditional branch or even a jump that's going to go somewhere, suddenly everything changes. We, we now don't know whether we're going to keep going or go somewhere else until later in that instruction's phasing remember now instructions are being cracked apart they're being they're being decoded they're being executed there's like all this work being done before the the before the outcome of the instruction is known the problem is if it's a branch instruction that might 
change the sequence. If it does change, if, if it's branching us to somewhere else, well, everything behind that instruction has to be scrapped. So the entire pipeline has to be dumped and we stall until we are able to then load a series of, of instructions from the new location and sort of get all this going again. And that's what screwed up Prescott because I think their prediction wasn't good or their pipelines were too long and they had a lot of dumps. Well, yes. So, so, so having developed this amazing complexity for dealing with, I mean, like just incredible acceleration of performance as long as you go straight. The second, the second you change away from that, that linear execution, you, you're in serious trouble. So engineers realized that branch prediction was crucial. That is literally being able to guess without knowing what a branch was going to do. Well, the way they've come up with doing this, there was a there was a first level. Um, uh, uh, you you can imagine a a, a simple minded way, which says, okay, let's assume that the branch that we encounter, if we've ever encountered it before, is going to do the same thing. So 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 that sort of makes an assumption that that branches generally do whatever they're going to do. In fact microprocessor designers realize that that many branches that are branching backwards are are at the bottom of a loop in uh, sort of a, a loop of code which tends to get executed a lot and then finally isn't executed so the branch a branch backwards tends to be taken as opposed to a branch forward so there were some simple minded sort of branch guessing that way then they said, well, wait a minute, let's, let's record the last outcome of the branch and assume that it's going to do the same thing again. So, the, so an early branch predictor simply did that. And the idea was that you would take the, the, a chunk of the lower um, address bits, so like the least significant address bits um, in the in the instruction counter and you would for for every one of those address bits you'd create a table that had a single bit in it which which recorded the a branch at this location did the following thing last time it was taken or it wasn't taken now we're not talking about having a bit for every branch in the computer we're we're saying that we're going to have we're going to have a sort of a a a bit, maybe 256 bits for like the lowest byte of the instruction. So branches could collide with each other. A branch that was exactly 256 words further down would end up having the same least significant byte of address. So its bits would collide with each other. There's nothing we can do about that. Um, in, but the probability of that is relatively low. And so, so there was always this, this cost versus performance trade-off that's being made. 
But the, the engineers weren't happy with just using a single bit because um, imagine that you had a branch which in the, in the code literally alternated what it did every other time. It turns out that's also very common. Well, that would literally mean that every prediction you would make was wrong. If you remembered what it did last time and you assumed it was going to do it again, and this branch, the logic in this branch was in every other logic, then you'd always be guessing wrong. And so the, the performance would just be abysmal. You'd get no benefit from your pipeline. You'd be constantly dumping the pipeline and then needing to refill it. So the developers came up with a two-bit branch predictor, which they call a saturatable or a saturating counter. The idea being that so two bits could obviously have four states. You could be zero, zero. And then if you count up, you go to zero, one. You count again, you go to one, zero. And again, you go to one, one. So those are the possible values. So the idea of a two-bit branch predictor was that if it if you took the branch, you would increment this two-bit counter, but never more than one one. So that that's the, that's the saturating part. It would saturate. It would go to one one and then just stay there. If you did not take the branch, you would decrement the counter and down to zero zero. But then you never go below zero zero. It saturates at, at the bottom end also. So what this what this gave you was a better sort of sort of sort of more of a probability you could if you generally took the branch but not always this counter would it would you'd it would still make a mistake but it wouldn't change its mind completely so if you if you if you generally took a branch even if you occasionally didn't it would still remember that you generally took it so it would again it would generally be guessing correctly and so that increased the performance of branch prediction substantially. But there was still a problem, which was that there were patterns of branching, which this simple-minded two-bit predictor couldn't handle. And so in real-world applications, it was, it was better than nothing, way better than nothing. But some, some other engineers realized, hey, we can do something even more clever. We can do a, a two-level prediction. So what they created was a shift register of bits, which was whether the branch was taken or not in history. And it wouldn't be very long. Maybe, let's say for, for discussion, that it's, it's only four bits. It's only four bits long. So the shift register is remembering whether branches are ta actually were taken or not. And every time we come to a branch, we first of all look at the least significant byte of the address to choose one of 256 whole worlds. So each possible location in memory with, with, with this 256 cycle has its own entire little branch prediction world. Okay, so within that world is, the, is a four-bit shift register that remembers for that branch or branches at that location in memory 
whether the branch was taken or not. Okay, those four bits, we know that four bits gives us 16 possibilities. Those four bits are used to choose one of 16 of our little two-bit saturating counter predictors. And what we end up with is literally pattern recognition, where, where over time, this acquires a knowledge of, the, of any sequence of, of up to four long of branches and not branches being taken. That will be recorded in the two-bit predictor, which will tell the computer with very good probability whether the branch will be taken again or not. And these predictors have grown in length and in size. And so remember that there's one of these whole predictors for each of a number of different locations in memory where these branches could fall. So, so now what we've done is we've got this pipeline sucking in instructions, cracking them down, looking at their interdependencies, reorganizing them on the fly, taking it, we've decoupled the arithmetic logical units and the floating point processors and the instruction decoding and all of this so that those are all now separate resources which are being assigned and used as soon as they can, as soon as we're able to see that we've got, we, we, we know enough to allow one of these micro operations to proceed, we do. At the same time, the, the, the system is filling up the pipeline at the, at, at the top using the results, you know, assuming we're, we're going linearly unless we, unless we hit a branch or a jump and, and then recording the history and, and literally learning the pattern of, of the past sequence of branches in the code and sort of, sort of heuristically developing an awareness of pattern recognition of whether the, I mean, so that it's able to guess with as much as it turns out 93% probability whether a given branch will be taken or not, only missing about 7% of the time. And when, it, when it's Is that wrong, the average for uh, all processors or? Uh, yes, state-of-the-art prediction now. That's amazing. Is a, I know. It's just That's amazing. It's 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 like that old uh, joke. How do it know? <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's, it's like, like predicting the future. Really, it's like six point seven per six point seven five percent misprediction. So about seven wow. percent misprediction. Ninety three percent of the time, they're able to guess right. Wow. And so making a mistake is expensive in prediction because right. we have to flush all the work we were doing and then go somewhere else. But 93% of the time, we're able to get it right. Now, one of the... Before we get to the next feature, okay, may I interrupt you? By by all means. We're doing great. But I just want to uh, get one more commercial in before we get to the improvements that have been made more recently. Because you you would think now, hey, this is magic. This is all you need to do. We still got a couple more. (laughs) We still got some more magic ahead. But uh, speaking of magic, I want to tell you about a great place to go to make your website your magical website if you're looking to move off of uh, blogger or wordpress or typepad if you're looking for a host that has incredible 
content management software, look no farther than squarespace.com. And I say that because we are very happy Squarespace users. We use it for the Twit blog. I'm moving my radio show. This is how good it is. I'm moving my radio show uh, site over to squarespace.com, something I should have done a long time ago, to be honest with you. Um, but I'm, I'm uh, you know, old habits die hard. But I've just watched more and more of my friends, Kevin Rose, Lisa Bettany, Sarah Lane, move to squarespace.com. I've seen more and more happy customers send me emails, and now I'm realizing, but I should have been doing this forever. You should too. Why? It gives you full control over your site, and your site looks gorgeous. You can customize it beautifully. Build it fast, and it runs fast with Squarespace's VPS, Virtual Private Servers. This technology using Java is amazing. Gives you bandwidth when you need it. Scalable, kind of almost infinitely. You get seamless blog importing. So if you've got a movable type WordPress type pad or blog or blog, it could just boom, chikum, take that stuff in. And by the way, and this is something I really believe in, is true data portability. You can export it too. You're never stuck. Try it right now free. You don't even need a credit card. 15 days free if you go to squarespace.com slash security now and take a look. I do recommend if you're, uh, you know, there's a great tour on the site, but if you're interested in what a Squarespace site looks like, one of the things I've found is that, you know, WordPress, you can always tell you go to a Drupal site or a WordPress site, you're saying, oh, I know what that is. There's a certain look not with Squarespace. Look at these example sites, and you'll realize every Squarespace site is unique because Squarespace, even though you start with these great templates, lets you do anything you want with CSS and JavaScript. So you, you, even if you don't know any design, you're going to start with a great template. And then as you... Look, here's our site. We're on there. Inside.twit.tv. As you improve your technology uh, and your abilities, so does your website. Squarespace.com slash security. Now, the free trial for 15 days, absolutely free. You don't even need a credit card. And if you decide to buy, use security now as a coupon code and you will get 10% off for the life of your site. That's a, that's a really good deal. It's not a lot at first because uh, Squarespace sites are very affordable. They start at $8 a month. So, okay, you save, save 80 cents a month. But this is forever. And you can upgrade from the basic to pro, advanced business, and even community. And even at the top line... It's very affordable, a lot less than we spend for our servers. You get hosting in the cloud, visual style designer, amazing statistics, content management that includes an iPhone app, great support for social media, and more for a very affordable price. If it's time to set up a website, if you're ready to get a better site, if you're tired of your site bogging down with a twit effect, squarespace.com slash security now. It's the place where great websites start. Back to our conversation. Steve Gibson is here from GRC.com. He's the man behind uh, Spinrite, that great software for hard drive maintenance and recovery and a lot of great security tools. Somebody's asking in the chat room, this isn't security. Well, in a way it is. This is a series Steve's been doing all along on the basics, the fundamentals of computing. In fact, from day one on security now, you've really done a great job, I think, of getting people up to speed with these fundamentals, things you have to understand to understand security, right? These are not completely incidental to security. It certainly is the case that that everything is interrelated. For example, I'm thinking as I'm as I'm working toward getting going on CryptoLink, the VPN product that I'm going to do next. Well, encryption performance and decryption performance is 
very important. And understanding the internals of what the chip is doing really does allow a developer who wants to truly optimize their code to to arrange the instructions so that the logic in the chips have the most latitude for 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 working and you know certainly performance has been something that we've been questing after forever yeah so so and we're getting it with this amazing pipelining oh. and, and and parallelism and so so forth. so the so the engineers have got this incredible pipeline built they've got now this amazing branch prediction system. And then they realize that they've still got a problem because they suck in a return instruction into the top of the pipeline. Well, we know from having discussed this before what a subroutine return does. When we, when we call a subroutine, we're, we're using the stack we we decrement the stack pointer and put the address of the instruction after the call on the stack so that later once that subroutine has finished it's able to do a return instruction which which looks on the stack for where to return to which has a beautiful effect from a programmer standpoint of bringing us right back to the instruction following the one which invoked the subroutine. Well, the other one of the first things the subroutine does, because most subroutines don't want to mess up what was going on when they were called, they'll push a bunch of registers value onto the stack themselves to so that they can be popped off the stack and restored prior to returning. That allows them to have sort of those registers to work with and then not mess up what, what was going on in the main code that called the subroutine. Okay, so with that in mind, visualize what's going on in the processor now with the pipeline, where the pipeline is full of sub of, of the instructions for the toward the end of the subroutine, and then the subroutine is finished and it does a return. Now, the problem is that the return uses the value on the stack. But the thing that the subroutine is doing just before it returns is cleaning up its registers, getting their values off the stack in order to restore them to what they were. Which And, and this is happening further down in the pipeline, which means the stack pointer is going to be changing a lot and there's no way we can use we, there's no way we can execute any of the return instruction until literally we get we we know what the stack pointer is going to be and then we have to go read where it's pointing get that value that tells us where to return to so then we have to we start fetching instructions from there which means a return instruction is deadly. It literally brings everything to a halt because we don't we we don't know where the stack pointer will be because the instructions typically occurring all of those instructions just before the return are changing the stack pointer as they pop the values of the registers 
back off the stack into the registers so that they're restored when we go home. So the engineers scratch their head for a while and they say, wait a minute. What we need is an internal call stack. We need our own private stack because we know that more often than not, subroutines nest perfectly. That is, some code calls a subroutine, which will return. Or maybe that subroutine calls a subroutine, but that one returns to the one that called it, and then it returns to the one that called it. In order, in otherwise, there's a nesting, which is almost always followed, which means that the this incredible execution unit in the processor now maintains its own call stack. When it sees that it has been jumped to a subroutine, it records internally the address of the instruction after that call on its own little stack. There's no instructions to get to it. Programmers can't see it. It's, it's, it's completely invisible. Um, they, the call stack ranges from 4 to 32 entries in modern processors now. And so what happens is, since the internal pipelining miracle has, has recorded this, the second a return instruction is seen, which is just a byte in the, in, for example, in, in Intel uh, instruction, it's just a 60 hex, a 60 hex. Um, the second that byte is seen, the system says, ah, that's a return instruction. You're, we don't have to wait for anything. We can immediately pull where we know it's ultimately going to return to off of our own internal stack and continue without interruption, sucking in more data from, from the point we're going to be returning to without missing a beat. So, so that's another level of what was added. Now, once all of this was finished, and this was maybe, oh, about a decade ago, we had this level of technology, there was still some unhappiness with the contention for resources. That is, there was, there was still not an, what's called instruction level parallelism. There, there still was like the ALUs and the floating point units. They were sitting around not being used all the time. They, they, the, the engineers weren't able to, to get them busier because there was still too much interdependence among these micro operations that, that they were, they're, they're just, they, they couldn't get enough, they, they weren't able to use the resources fully. Well, this is when this notion of simultaneous thread execution occurred to them, which is a which Intel calls hyperthreading. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago in passing. I couldn't do it justice because we didn't have enough foundation to understand what hyperthreading is. Well, we do now after the last 45 minutes of this. What hyperthreading is is the recognition that there is what's called register pressure. There is there is not enough freedom of value assignment among registers. There, there's just too much interdependency. But if we had a whole second set 
of registers, if we duplicated everything, then where some micro instructions are are fighting with each other, too interdependent, where they're having to wait for results to finish before the later ones can start, therefore assets like the arithmetic logic unit and the floating point unit are sitting around being unused, if we have another physical thread, that is, we have another whole set of registers, well, they're, because it's a different thread, they're, they're, they're logically disconnected from the first thread's registers. There is no conflict at all possible between these separate banks of registers. So what hyperthreading does is it, I mean, and this, talk about it being confusing already, this literally pours instructions from two entirely different threads of execution down into the same pipeline, breaking them all up, keeping them all straight, realizing that these micro-ops and these registers are actually different from those micro-ops and those registers. So now we have, we've doubled the opportunity for for exploiting these fixed assets, the, the, the arithmetical logical unit and the floating point unit, being able to keep them busy much more of the time, which is what hyper-threading does. Essentially, it doesn't duplicate the entire system, but it, it allows us to pour two different threads of execution into the same pipeline and get a tremendous boost. I mean, it's, it's not like doubling. We don't get double because the resources weren't that underutilized. Typically, it's about a 25% gain, which, you know, in this quest for performance is, you know, is better than a kick in the head. So lastly, with all of this sort of with, with the, this this much industry having been expended in order to satisfy essentially CISC, that is complex instruction set computers, the guys designing the risks were just dizzy. They said, okay, uh, wow, do we want to do the same thing? Are we, are we going to basically duplicate this insanity? Risk architecture is is different in a number of ways. Fundamentally, the the risk concept was designed to prevent there from being a lot of this kind of of like available performance boost because because the instruction design just doesn't get itself into trouble so much. One of the very clever things that risk instructions do is there's something called conditional instructions and a something called an explicit condition, condition code update. Now, what that means is that notice that we have, an, we have a, a stream of instructions that are being executed by the processor. And then a branch instruction is often skipping over some. There'll be something that, that like you don't want to execute in this certain case, so you 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 know you jump ahead ten instructions or five instructions or something. You you you're skipping over them, which is many times what what a branch will do. What the what the risk designers realized was, 
at the expense of some more bits in the instruction word, and it does it does widen the instruction word a bit, they could make what's called conditional instructions instead of branches. That there are still branches and jumps, and those are being optimized still very much the way they are in sys constructions with branch prediction and so forth. There's no way around that. But but essentially the 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 risk guys said, wait a minute, if we just want to skip over five or six instructions, for example, if the result of an add was zero, or if the result did not overflow and the carry bit was set, why not add to any instruction some additional bits that say execute this unless the condition code is zero, which means that we've saved ourselves a branch. We don't have to branch over those instructions. We can make the instructions themselves just sort of skip over themselves. The instruction says only execute me in the cert- in this certain case. That is the case where we wouldn't have taken the branch. So what this did was this allowed a, a very aggressive forward fetching pipeline to to go in a straight line and we understand why pipelines like to go in a straight line we were talking about that before this allows the pipeline to to fetch ahead and even though it may not be executing instructions it's it saves all of the the, the possibility of a branch misprediction because we don't have a branch at all now the other trick is if you had a group of instructions which you collectively wanted to to execute or not in a certain case, if you were executing them, you wouldn't want them to change like the state of the carry bit or the zero bit or any of the condition codes because then that would mess up the conditional execution of the instructions that followed. So the other thing that was added, in addition to this notion of a conditional, conditionally executed instruction, is the ability for the instruction not to modify the condition code when normally it would. You might be like doing some addition and normally the add instruction will set a flag saying, oh, the outcome was zero, the outcome set the carry bit, the outcome was not zero, you know, various various um, condition code situations like that where in, so, 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 what, so what was done was a bit was added that said, do the add, but don't change the condition code because we're we're wanting to to continue the instructions afterwards along the same to have the same effect as um, as the one we, we just executed based on a condi- condition code which was set deliberately earlier in the path, and so that was the, essentially the final optimization that the risk guys brought. Um, into the design of the instruction set, which which further made pipelines um, uh, a, uh, able to uh, absorb this huge number of instructions, sort through everything, and perform really this just this overwhelming uh, job 
of making processors incredibly fast. It's, it is it is such an amazing, mind-boggling thing, especially when you think that we're operating now at the microscopic, microscopic at, the, at the level of a molecule's width in some of these uh, newer 45 nanometer processors. It's truly well, amazing. Yeah, and I would imagine that probably everyone listening to the podcast has at one time or another seen one of those very cool oh, yeah. photo, photo micrographs like that of, of just of a processor chip, sort of as if it was taken. It looks like a satellite photo of a city. And you look at that and you think, my goodness, look at that. I mean, you, just, you can just tell by the level of detail in there that an incredible amount of something is going on. Well, what we've just described is what that something is that this technology is what has has increased the power consumption increased the size increased the cost but but dramatically allowed the performance of these processors to increase and and this what we described today this kind of inc- incredible out of order execution branch prediction Internal call stack, register renaming, um, all of this is in all of today's processors. We, it, it's just being taken for granted now. It's it's the way we have the kind of performance that we do. Without any of this stuff, we you know we we'd be back with an eighty eighty eight running at four point seven seven megahertz. There was a, a really good book. It's been it must be ten years ago now called the Silicon Zoo. Where they had those little picture, the pictures of the stuff. Of course, huh. it's so old now; it's changed a lot. But these photo micrographs, uh, if you search for Silicon Zoo, they're still they're still online. Um, some pretty amazing pictures. Uh, <laughs> you can tell how old the site is, though, because it says, "Oh, this is going to take a minute at twenty eight eight. It's a big image, <laughs> but you can do a little googling and you'll find it. Fascinating stuff, Steve. You, once again, you've done a great job um, of explaining how this stuff works. And networking next. But next week, we're going to do a Q&A, I think. Yes? Yep, we have a Q&A. And then I'm going to... Many listeners have said, Hey, Steve, I thought you were going to tell us about LastPass. We wanna, we're using it. We want to know we should be. And it's safe. So that's queued up for two weeks from now. We'll do a Q&A next week. And then I'm going to explain in detail the cryptographic protocols... Uh, for LastPass and how the whole system works. Oh, great. That's great. If you have Q&A uh, questions, uh, grc.com slash feedback is the place to go. He's got a feedback form there. GRC is a great place to go for not only Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, but also this show. 16 kilobit versions are there for bandwidth impaired fellas and gals. Uh, of course, I love the transcripts. It's a great way to follow along. And I suspect more than one teacher is using your uh, uh lectures on how computer fundamentals in their classes so uh, i think transcripts would be very helpful in that case as well and you're more than welcome to do that i i hope that you understand you don't have to get our permission uh, to use these uh, podcasts they're uh, creative commons licensed attribution yep. non-commercial share alike is the license you can find out more at twit.tv at the bottom of the page there about our license and you're more than welcome to use these in fact we i think it's great if you do in uh, courseware somebody was asking in the chat room uh, Steve is also the author of many great freebies, which you'll find at grc.com. And he's got a Twitter account now. Be careful. He's got more than one. He's got several. In fact, he's got the main account, which is at SGGRC. He's got the account. Are you still posting articles about uh, tablets? 
Haven't for a while, but I've I've when something comes up, I will definitely do that. That's at SGPAD. Yep. And then the corporate account at Gibson Research. That's all on Twitter and his new blog, Steve.grc.com. Did I get that right? You did. All right, my friend. God, I love this stuff. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week, Leo. Take care. Security now.